We love making software that people use. We love making tools that people interacted with and found some joy in or some satisfaction or made people's lives a bit better in some way. And I think that's how we drew the through line, you know, and our company mission to make people's working lives simpler, more pleasant and more productive is broader than Slack the product. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to What Led You Here, a podcast where global leaders talk about their journey and how they find the edge to succeed in a world that's getting faster, more complex, and less predictable all the time. I'm Steve Vamos, CEO of Zero and the host of this series. I've spent the last 40 years in the tech industry where time and again, I've witnessed how success or failure hinges on a leader's ability to lead, manage, and respond to change and overcome moments of fear and doubt. In this podcast, I talk to CEOs, founders, and entrepreneurs who've embraced change, made sacrifices, and demonstrated true belief in their ideas. Importantly, I'll chat to them about how they instill that belief in others who back them and work with them. So I'm delighted to welcome our guest, Cal Henderson, co-founder and chief technology officer of the wildly popular messaging platform Slack and the fastest startup to reach unicorn status, achieving a billion dollar valuation in just over a year. I've really been looking forward to this conversation with Cal because our companies have very similar philosophies of purpose. Slack exists to make work life simpler, more pleasant and more productive for people and companies. And Zero, we exist to improve the lives of people in small business, their advisors and communities around the world. A very obvious human element that we share and about connecting people at work. So Cal, it's great to have you as a guest on the podcast. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. You've had an amazing career so far, from originally finding your love of computing and programming through your exploration a number of times in the gaming space to Flickr, the acquisition of Flickr by Yahoo, then Slack, the IPO, and now as a very significant part of Salesforce, maybe focusing on the journey with Slack. Talk a little bit about how that all began for you and your co-founder and CEO of Slack, Stuart Butterfield. So you have to go back in time to like the early 2000s. Stuart had started a company, was trying to make a video game on the internet. I eventually joined that company to work on the game. We started this project on the side that became Flickr. Flickr became successful and we shelved the game. Flickr was acquired by Yahoo, worked on it for four years. And then we were like, we're going to start a game again. So we got some of the same people together. It's the same set of four co-founders. And we spent this time four years and a whole bunch of money trying to make an online video game. And once again, failed. It wasn't the great success that we needed it to be, but it also wasn't a total failure. It was kind of doing okay. And that's why we ended up working on it for four years was because we had this constant belief that the next thing we do is really going to turn the corner and we just need to bend the curve a bit and this will be a successful business. You have to believe in what you're doing to, you know, to make anything successful. It became obvious kind of slowly over time that that wasn't going to be the case. So it was a really difficult decision. It took us a while to come to, to to shut that game and the business down. We had 50 employees. We had to lay off a bunch of people, you know, in some cases who had moved across the country to come join us. But we shut it down before we ran out of money. And then we thought, what are we going to do next? We knew we wanted to keep working together. We loved making stuff together. And we still had some capital left. And our investors didn't want the money back. They wanted to make a bet on whatever we were going to do next. 
we had built this set of tools for building the game, building the company, coordinating between our offices in San Francisco, in Vancouver, in Canada, and one of our founders was out in New York. And we built this set of tools to be able to coordinate and run the company. And this set of tools that we'd built organically as part of building the game, we knew that we never wanted to work without a set of tools like that again. We knew that this was a unique and great way of working together. And so we figured we should turn that into a business. We should turn it into a product and see if we could bring it to other teams like ours, small technical teams coordinating complex work. And that's how the idea for Slack was born. So you really touched on a couple of things here. Like one is obviously the importance of belief, belief in the idea. You also talked then about the challenge of confronting the reality that maybe this idea you believe in is not going to take you where you want to go. And I think taking away from what you said, it didn't just happen overnight. Is it fair to say there were a lot of conversations that sort of explored that before you finally made the decision, but you were really consciously processing it for quite some time? Yeah, that's definitely the case. And I think, you know, a lot of this is in retrospect now, now that I'm like wiser, hopefully. You have to have a belief that's, you know, further out than the reality of what you're doing. Otherwise, you're, you know, it would be impossible to, to start a kind of company like this or, or have that kind of growth trajectory. You have to believe in where you're going. And to some extent, you manifest it, right? Through believing in it because you bring other people along and you tell the story and you convince people to come work for you. You convince investors that what you're doing is exciting. You build that product by believing that it's going to exist and going to be successful. So I think that makes the the kind of come down more complicated, the coming to grips with, well, you know, there's a gap between my belief and the reality and we're not going to be able to close it. So that that was over the course of discussions over the course of at least a year. We were talking about, uh, are we really going to be able to do this? Yes, I think we are. We should give it another go. We should give it another go. This next thing is definitely going to work. And that was the kind of curse of we tried a lot of things and many of them worked a bit. It would have been a much easier set of decisions, a much easier timeline if we'd failed much more, you know, definitively, if things hadn't worked and we just had no ideas. But we had that belief and we had ideas and the next thing was definitely going to turn the corner. And I think that was what put us in such a difficult spot. I've come to the view that belief is the currency of business because before there's any money, there's got to be belief. And so it really does run deep. When you looked at your passion over four years, being translated then to another venture, did that passion around the communication tools, did that translate or build immediately? Did you kind of feel like, ah, oh, now I'm being driven by something more rational than maybe my love? And, and how did that affect your thinking? It's a great question because games and enterprise collaboration software are pretty different categories. And definitely we didn't go into this with an incredible passion for like, the future of work or communication reform or anything like that. That wasn't what we set out to do. We set out to, to make a game. But I think ultimately it's how you map what you are passionate about to what you're doing. We love making software that people use. We love making tools that people interacted with and found some joy in or some satisfaction or made people's lives a bit better in some way. And I think that's how we drew the through line, you know, and our company mission to make people's working lives simpler, more pleasant and more productive is broader than Slack the product. That's the category of things which, which is exciting to me, is exciting to the other early employees as well, is having an impact on, on people's working lives. And, you know, people spend so much of the day working that that's a pretty big lever on people's lives. In the end, that bore out, you know, beyond our wildest expectations of how much impact we could actually have on a lot of people. But I think that's how we drew that through line. It wasn't a passion about messaging or collaboration. 
one of the other things that we talked about doing and as we figured out what we we're going to do next was maybe we should start a bank, like an online bank with a really great experience. Not because we cared about banks, but because we hated the experience of using our current banks. And it was, could we make a great product that people would really enjoy using and that we could you know, exercise our craft of making software and getting in people's hands and, and having them use that and, and improve their lives as a result? Yeah, that's really fascinating. It sort of makes me think that in a sense, you can have passion in your purpose as much as you have passion about the specific domain. So that can drive you to very much the same outcome. Yeah, it's so important in giving you that sort of energy and drive. I'm interested, what's your take on luck and timing in terms of how they play out a bit? And by the way, what you've accomplished doesn't happen by accident. So it's really just interesting to get, because you have achieved what you have, it's, it's interesting to get your reflection on how maybe luck and timing played into your journey. Yeah, it, it's kind of hard to separate luck and timing, I think, in, in some ways, because a lot of the luck can be in the correct timing of things. But I think luck and timing together is probably 80% of, you know, of the success I've had. Nothing at the, at the core of Slack conceptually is brand new. You know, we had... IRC before we had, uh, you know, MSN, all of these kind of messaging tools, alternative ways to work. There were tools somewhat like Slack, uh, Campfire from 37signals, which didn't have many users, but was in a similar category or, or HipChat from Atlassian. So there's really the timing aspect of when we did it and when was the right time. And we capitalized on a bunch of kind of secular trends, the kind of SaaS movement companies were starting to trust more and more of their business to, to SaaS-hosted applications. That was really different a few years before. In fact, when we started Slack in the first year, a lot of customers asked us when we we're going to do an on-prem version because they would never adopt cloud software. So, you know, the SaaS trend was really important. Really, the consumerization of the enterprise and people's, that kind of generational shift that happened from 2000, 2010, maybe, where it switched from enterprise software being at the kind of cutting edge of technology investment and technology experience to consumer software being that. And that had that massive explosion in quality of software that people interacted with in their consumer lives. You know, that's like maybe half Facebook and the other half iPhone, real vast simplification. But people were using these tools that were really intuitive and then coming to the workplace and saying, why do I have to use this old thing when these are the tools that I use in my personal life? And then I think thirdly, the other big secular trend was the move towards messaging and away from email. The idea that people don't email their friends anymore, they use iMessage and WhatsApp. And so those three trends together and the timing of just when we built the product is a huge, a huge part of why it was successful. And then there's luck because some people build the right product at the right time. And for whatever reason, it just doesn't catch on. And there's definitely some element of it that isn't luck. Like we had to actually build a product that people cared about. We had to position it well, talk about it the right way. It had to work. But so much of it is about timing and just getting that just right. Yeah, I'd, I'd give you a bigger percentage of credit for what you've accomplished because you know, I think you're right. I think luck and timing are obviously um, significant, particularly in the way technologies evolved. I mean, I can remember convergence was coming for like 30 years before it finally kind of manifested itself in, uh, in the iPhone. And uh, it finally happened, you know, but it took a long time. And picking the right moment is not a trivial part of success. Certainly, you and the team around you, you know, and I think maybe that's a good focus for the next question, which is the importance of the people around you and the quality of the conversation that you have. When you reflect on that, how do you think, how do you feel about the people that have been on the journey with you or significant moments in time where maybe even an external person might have changed your course a bit? I'm interested in your take on that. 
through the first few years of Slack, I spent a huge amount of my time recruiting for two reasons. We were growing really fast. We had a few years where we more than doubled headcount every year. And that's a really big organizational undertaking. And then also the hires that you make early on are so impactful on what happens down the road. The second hire matters so much more than the, than the 200th. So for, the, for those first few years, I spent up to a third of all of my time on recruiting, whether it was meeting candidates, interviewing, onboarding people, but that real investment in, in the team. When you're going through that kind of growth phase, if you get behind, it is really difficult to dig out from under it because any time that goes into recruiting or onboarding people is taking away from being able to you know, keep the product running if you have massive demand. And if you fall behind on one or the other, then you really fall behind and you can get in a terrible spot. So that balance you know, and that prioritization over both recruiting and the kind of quality and the way in which we did it, but also then how we scale out that process, how we make sure that it's repeatable, that every person that we interview and hire, we're hiring for Slack, not hiring for the person that did the interview. Like, how do we make sure we're being really consistent in how we assess people so that we can make that process smooth, a really great candidate experience, and then get in all of the people that, you know, that we want to recruit. We still do that today, obviously, just at, at a different scale, but it matters so much more when you're small, the people that you surround yourself with. And you recruit for a very different set of skills. You know, the, the third engineer you hire, you need them to be a very different person than the 3000th, just because they're going to be working on everything. You know, they're going to understand every aspect of the system, but also maybe they're going to bring in the groceries for the office and lock it up at night, uh, you know, and figure out, like, call the phone company when our phones aren't working or whatever, right? It's a very different job when you're a startup and it's a different person with a different risk profile and different understanding of, you know, what the role's going to be. And so many of the people who work at Slack today have been there many years, but not all of the people from the early days are still there now because they're, they're looking for something different. And today we're a multi-thousand person company has now been acquired by an even much larger company that's public as well. And it's just a very different job. And so that evolves and the, and the people change along the way. Oh, I've read where you've said that when you're in a startup phase, you're actually building three things, a product or service, a business and a culture. And you've just talked about, you know, the recruitment process. What's your take on culture? You know, I guess from a, a founder, you know, entrepreneurial viewpoint, how should it play in your thinking? I think it's incredibly important to think about it because whatever you do, your organization will have a culture. And so it's a question of whether that's going to be something that you influence and shape consciously or unconsciously. And early on in really the company that then became Slack, when we started the game, Right at the beginning, we said, we want this to be a company that we will still be proud and happy to work for in a decade. And I've been at Slack 13 years now. That has come true. It's a very different organization. But really, we wanted to be very intentional about what we rewarded, what we celebrated, what our values were, what we were and weren't looking for in employees and how we acted together. And whether you do that or not, you're going to get a culture out of it. It's just incredibly difficult to change if you get one that is not what you want. A lot of that experience came out of being part of Yahoo at a pivotal moment as the you know company started a decline of this is the kind of large company that we don't want to grow into, one that doesn't understand its identity or what it's doing and that feels very large and bureaucratic. It's not just because it's big, it's just because of the, you know, the way the, the company has evolved and what it valued. And we wanted to be very clear in what our values were and how we would operate. And that stuff evolves over time, right? The experience of working at a 10-person startup is never going to be the same as working at a public company. And you change and evolve things you know, along the way. You kind of reframe the kind of expression of your values and what that actually means in day-to-day work. But 
I'm here 13 years later and I still love Slack, the organization, as well as the product. Obviously, I use the product every day, but I love the organization that we have as a, as a group of people working together as well. That's there today because of that investment we started making 13 years ago. That experience you've had of going from the startup to now being part of an even larger organization is really interesting when you, you reflect on culture. One of the interesting things that I think in that journey, you hear a lot of people talk about, oh, we don't want to become corporate, right? It's really about being clear about what it means to get bigger and more, more thoughtful and disciplined versus being small and, and starting on the journey. And I find that often my conversations as we're implementing changes to improve operational excellence end up in that domain where you're trying to say, hey, listen, this is actually about making you all work more effectively rather than trying to constrain you. Is, is that sort of something that you've had to wrestle with? Because it's certainly one I do. Yeah, I think that's one of, and maybe that's the category that people talk about when they when they think about becoming more corporate, and that as a negative, is often about bureaucracy, like heavy process, but it's often tied to process that seems needless, and I don't understand why it's there, and we just have to do it because that's like, that's the thing the company does. So I think the ways in which you can fight against that is you can try and have less process. To a certain extent, that's a good thing to do. You know, you want the right balance of making sure that things are repeatable and that we get good results, but without massively overreacting. I think it's very easy to be any single mistake that gets made, you put in some process to avoid it, and then you end up in this terrible gridlock. On the other side, like organizations without good operational excellence or you know process at scale are horrible to work for too, because you can't get anything done. It's constant chaos. So you need to find that right balance. But I think a bigger aspect of it is kind of agency and autonomy and people understanding why those processes exist and having mechanisms to update them, get rid of them where it makes sense. And I think as we were growing as an organization and working towards being a public company the first time around, we spent probably at least a year internally really focused on operational excellence of how can we make everything we do run more smoothly, you know, whether it was like finance, HR, recruiting, engineering operations and process, and a real focus on finding out things that we could improve, and then improving them and giving people agency to improve them as well. So I think that that can be the big difference. If people feel like they understand why it is, or they feel like they can change it, then it becomes less about bureaucracy and just about the way you need to organize. Obviously, there's no one process or bit of apparatus that everybody will like, but it's in giving people the context around why things happen, as opposed to it being this faceless black box that people react negatively to. Yeah, that's fascinating. One of the things I've, I've liked in our place in, in the conversation about well-being of late is that we're sort of layering well-being as three levels. One is your individual practices, and I want to come back to that with you because I know you're very disciplined in your thinking about that. The other is what does the company generically provide its people? And then the third, which I really love, is what is your work environment experience like in the team you work in? Because if that's a rotten experience, you go home rung out, that affects your work-life balance. But the operational excellence piece, which is not always that popular to talk about, is about making that day-to-day work experience a lot better for every individual. So that when you talk well-being, it goes to really the ultimate, which is what was my work experience like? In terms of uh, your insight and your, your thinking about well-being as well, I know you've got tremendous discipline in your approach. Can you talk a bit about that? During the the kind of evolution of Slack as a company, uh, a big turning point for me personally was having kids. And you know, prior to that, I just worked all the time, which is you know cool to do when you're a startup founder and your whole life revolves around that particular piece of work. 
but I think it was probably really good for the company that I had kids. I have two sons now, and I got really disciplined about how much time I spend working and how much time I spend not working and, you know, specifically spend with my kids. And we have a lot of parents at Slack. So that isn't just how I operate. That's how we want everybody else to operate. And in the long run, that's the only way that you can have a sustainable culture as well. The kind of gaming industry, like two-year death march towards launching something that's terrible. And it doesn't work in the long term. You know, we're not doing a two-year project and then we're done and we spin down a studio. You know, we've been at this for a decade. We want people to be able to continue to, you know, grow and love working at Slack. And part of that is is long-term balance. And so I personally try to be very uh, disciplined about, you know, I have this time in the morning before I do any work where I spend with my kids, getting them off to school. Then, especially the last two years of the pandemic, I leave my house and go for a walk rather than just going downstairs into my home office here so that there's like a good punctuation between being at home and being at work and then work for the day and then wrap up at the end and spend that time with my kids before, you know, in my case, working again at night and picking up the phone. When it comes back to culture again, a lot of what you do will set the tone as a leader, sets the tone for the rest of the organization. And if you're the kind of person who's sending emails at you know 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., and then you start again at 6 a.m., you know that sends a message to people that that's the expectation. And we try and do the opposite. When it's in working hours, when you're working, you're focused and you're working hard. And then you're able to disconnect and you, you can go home. Working at Slack isn't a life sentence and it's not a 24-7 job. It's a job for, the, for your working hours each day. And you should be able to disconnect because otherwise it's not going to be healthy for the long term. I'm really interested in the work and some of the innovation that you're exploring around helping people or make accessibility for people who are colorblind, how you're approaching that. I'm colorblind myself, along with one in eight men in the US, which is an incredibly high number. And nearly everyone is super surprised when I, when I break out that stat especially for a piece of software like Slack, which is when it's used in the workplace is used by everybody, it needs to be able to be used by everybody equally. You know, I've been developing on the web for a long time. So I've been like aware of web accessibility, but I think the, you know, the more vital these tools become to just like functioning in society, whether that is in your personal life or in your work life, then it's really important that we offer those tools to everybody in a meaningful way. And so whether it is about vision, so like screen reader support, high contrast colors, as I get older, being able to bump up the text size on everything and being able to provide software for everybody, I think is incredibly important. And as we talk to more and more customers, it becomes evident that it's more and more important. The larger the organization that we serve, the more chance that that's going to be hugely impactful. Uh, the great insights, staying as connected and close to customers as you possibly can and Really appreciate you taking the time. I think maybe just so that uh, we can get to know you a little bit more, a few quick questions here that I thought we could close on. First one, what's your favorite sport to watch, team to follow? Are you into sport? I don't follow any sports at all, but I guess I would say probably like watching competitive Minecraft players with my son. So he's super into watching people play Minecraft. I don't really understand watching other people play video games, but uh, I think that's a generational divide and he's super into it. What's the biggest difference being a, a Brit originally working with North American people? What would you say is the one thing that you keep in mind when you're engaging with them? I think the biggest difference, and it, this might be very kind of Bay Area, Silicon Valley specific, is that Americans are very optimistic. And I think it's one of the reasons why the tech industry in the Bay Area has been so successful is because it requires a kind of relentless optimism, often in the face of like harsh reality. And if you you know, believe in it enough that you can manifest it and maybe it'll come true. And the opposite is definitely true in England. The default is cynicism of why would you start a company? Why not just get a job? Of course, it's going to fail. 
And then inevitably, when a startup does fail, it's, why did you do that? Of course it was going to fail. Now you should go get a real job. And that's not super healthy. The version in, you know, in the Bay Area is unhealthy in the opposite direction, which is like, great, you failed at something. What have you learned from that that you're going to use in your next company? And the Bay Area is very self-selecting. People who kind of fail and don't do anything else leave. And so it's really people who are, you know, who are starting startups. But there's this incredible supportive atmosphere of people who are encouraging you and this kind of optimism. And I think that's incredibly important. I'm certainly a much more optimistic person now than I was 20 years ago in the UK. And I think that's helpful in what I do today. You know, and it's funny, Australian culture relate closely to British. And I, I think that the thing that is most important to get, and you really underscored it, is that you are going to make mistakes and fail on the way whenever you're doing something new. There's nothing you learnt or do well today you didn't get good at by making mistakes. So it's it's really interesting how the cultures vary or differ on that particular dimension, which I think is is so important to having the courage to innovate. What about favourite type of food that you enjoy? I enjoy all food way too much. And I think, uh, you know, I like, I like to travel, uh, for food as well. You know, my favorite thing to do when I travel is to find somewhere new to eat. Recently, I was in Austin in Texas and I went there entirely to eat Austin barbecue, which was so good. So next time you're in Austin, uh, go to Franklin and get the brisket. Amazing. When I was in Texas last and the food is amazing. One, a Texan said this. I didn't say Texan said, uh, the food down here is good, but it's not good for you. So that was, uh, that was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that is accurate. Maybe the last one is, you know, if there's one place in the world you could live or travel to and experience, what's the top of your list? Oh, well, I really love living in the Bay Area because of the, you know, the technology industry here and being surrounded by, you know, people in the same space. But, oh, if I had to pick one place, I don't know, I've heard Wellington is beautiful. So uh, I do love New Zealand and uh, it's a beautiful city. Well, if you come to Wellington, let me know and um, love to show you around. But Cal, congratulations on your achievements and thank you so much for taking the time today. Love talking to you and learned a lot and sharing your experiences is going to um, be of great value to many others. So thank you and wish you all the best for the future. Thank you so much for having me today.